you please pronounce your names correctly for me? Yes, yeah, so my name is Claudia Mosley. And I'm Edward Schuster. Sometimes people say Schuster. You know, it's actually Czech originally. It was spelled S-U-S-T-R. And uh, then they kind of anglicized it. So I don't know. I don't know what the right way to say it is even. But Schuster, <laughs> I go with Schuster. Schuster. I recently found out my last name, D-O-L-S, is supposed to have the umlaut over it. More like Dulce. Yes, that's Which I'm not excited about. But anyways. Now, I want to start off with big fan. Love your work. Just to be clear on that. So like anything I ask about, total out of fanboying here. So now what the thing I love to know about people in the beginning, of course, is how did they get started? So like, were your parents creative to like, you know, all the way to your childhood? Did you have some great teachers, just some incredible experiences that led you down the path of even being creative at all? I mean, my answer is fairly simple in the sense that all of my family are in the film industry. So not just my parents, but also now my brother, my grandfather, my uncle, my great uncle was as well. So I was completely immersed in production of film, cinema. I always say that I was sort of half my education was on a film set because I often would be taken out of school and and be with my parents while they were filming. So that experience definitely had a big impact on me. I didn't want to go into the film industry myself, but I was very taken by the processes. I was very taken by the kind of the social production aspect as well as as well as the more physical one. And so I think I was definitely inspired to pursue this kind of deconstruction of what actually became photographic mediums. And then when I was at school, I, I was very supported in pursuing art. There was a darkroom. I was very lucky that there was a darkroom at my school. I was interested in analog photography. And when I went to art school, I, I carried on looking at that. But I was really interested in, in the magic of the darkroom. I was really interested in that feeling of being there and, and exposing onto paper. I started doing a lot of cameraless photography. So taking the negative out, exploring what could happen in between the lens and the light. I then took the lens out of the enlarger and that's sort of when it started to evolve into into the practice that that we have now. When I finished my degree, I met Ed and his philosophy aligned really nicely with a lot of the work that I had been doing. So well and then you did and then you went to do anthropology, which I think yes. is important. Yeah. yeah. So I then I, I sort of was a bit disheartened by the art world. A friend of mine was living on a protest site in Brighton. And I went to visit her and it just seemed like a lot of fun, much more fun than I'd been having at art school. So I went and lived with her for a while. I then went to a new site in in Wales, which was where I met Ed. So we actually met while I was living in a tree, in a tree house on a (laughs) I certainly had some questions about that because you just do like one phrase, like met while tree dwelling protest. I've got to hear the story behind that. Um, I mean, <laughs> when you say you were living at a protest site, that I mean, that these kinds of ideas are very foreign to me as an American. So uh, give me a little more context for that. Okay. So, well, in the UK, I mean, you were, I, the laws have changed slightly now, but you were allowed to protest by squatting, by living in a, in a site to protect it. So I went to visit my friend on a few of these different sites before actually going to a new site that had been set up, deciding that I would reside there for for some time. When I arrived, I think there were only two people there and then gradually the site grew. But it was, it was in an area of outstanding natural beauty, also uh, archaeological significance. 
and they were building a gas pipe through it. So our sort of point was like, you know, trying to move around it, but also there was a kind of social aspect because actually a lot of the people thought that the uh, gas was going to be directed to them and it wasn't, it was more in kind of industry's interest, obviously. And so there was a kind of, there was an interesting discussion going on in this space. But fundamentally, I lived there for three months in a structure that I built and Ed came sort of halfway through that mm-hmm. um, and lived there with me as well. And it was a group of kind of, wild philosophers artists and vagabonds <laughs> help me out paint me a picture like because when i read that i was like were you literally like did you have a tree house that was like off the ground that you were living in or were you just like living under the tree no no we were in a structure in a tree it was about 30 meters up i guess there was a second one that, that was a lot higher that we were in eventually because so you sort of have this plan for eviction, right? So like you have the treehouse that you're in and then there's platforms that are higher up that are harder to reach when eviction comes. So we're in this this specific treehouse that, that I had built myself and I had learned like how to lash, you know, you, like use all these materials that kind of found, they borrowed and stolen materials. And then when it came to the eviction, we went to an even higher treehouse, which I think was like 40 or 50 meters up. It was pretty high. There was like a series of nets and, and rope walks to get there. And we spent 36 hours together in mm-hmm. a tree, 40 or so meters up high. <laughs> and were either of you arrested at any point for this? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, an arrest. <laughs> okay. And it was interesting, you know, because when, when the people came to, well, firstly, like, you know, there was, there was two sets of people. There was the, the, the uh, eviction team who were getting paid by the hour. So they were quite happy to sit there and have, have donuts sent up to us and, you know, be quite chilled about the whole thing. And, uh, and, then, and then the police team, and actually, like, we had gained a lot of support from the local police in, in doing what we were doing. We'd had a few events, but, you know, because the thing is, is that those kind of spaces attract some people who, who didn't quite have the same intentions as us, let's put it that way. <laughs> so the local police had become quite familiar with us and with what we were trying to do, and actually they, they really supported it. So when we did get arrested, that you know, it was all quite jovial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not my experience with being arrested, but it's fine. <laughs> and Edward, what was your childhood like and how did you become creative? Well, no, I didn't go to art school or anything like that. I basically fell into philosophy and most of my interest historically has been in philosophy. So I, you know, I studied this at university in an MA level and wrote a PhD as well. But I'm very much interested in the edges of thinking you know so drawn to kind of esoteric traditions and things like this and specifically writing about light and geometry from the philosophical traditions so kind of probing the edges of really where we can take thought and language and this stemming over into an interest in mysticism you know these kinds of subjects which just lends itself to this transition towards practice right because you know even in the philosophical tradition before you think of anything like art you have traditions of meditation or, or ritual, things like this, to try to sort of approach where thought leaves off. That sort of was always historically my interest, but I didn't really have an outlet for it, other than I've always been a practicing musician. But in terms of visual art, I never really practiced until quite late. So basically when I met Claudia, we actually started 
sort of working together or dialoguing together through poetry. We actually, we were writing kind of, even probably up in the tree, we were doing yeah, this yeah, in kind of... in conversation. We were sort of getting to know each other that way. Yeah. So I, it actually started because we were, we were trying to talk outside of a group of people. We were trying to have a conversation. And so we just started writing it down and it, and it was very prosaic, unintentionally, really. And so we just realised that we could have this means of communicating that could be quite... I like pure, I guess it's the kind of honest way of describing it. Like it was, it was, it was very honest conversation through, mm. through that medium. Yeah, I think so. Well, and, and also I think just trying to, again, trying to push at the edges of what you could really say mm-hmm. in just day-to-day language and, and trying to think about, you know, what, what's actually behind the skin of, of one another and behind our day-to-day thinking patterns and, and trying to probe into that. I think showed to both of us that there was this kind of very ripe, opportunity for collaboration because I think we recognize quite early on that we actually come from very different styles of thinking and ways of ways of thinking and and certainly have a very different kind of skill set in terms of how we approach things that kind of met in this very interesting place where it was very productive it was just immediately I think very productive it was also at a moment in time that I think we were both feeling very freed you know yeah, like we were in true. this space that was incredibly freeing liberating and we ourselves felt very I guess open-minded and but at the same time acutely knowing how we felt about the world you know we sort of had these very specific ideas and ideals and perspectives that we were able to share in that moment yeah sure and then we originally started designing structures so we did this project so we took the experience of being in this protest site to Regent's Park in London did this project called the Treehouse Gallery, where we erected these big treehouse pavilions and had kind of events and workshops and things like that there. I guess we just, our practice kind of emerged from this sort of experience of of working out how to work together and, and what that meant. It was just kind of slow transition to realising, well, really, there was such an obvious point of a meeting between all the work, all the philosophy that I've been doing, which is about a philosophy of light and, 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 and geometry and things like that from a quite formal perspective and Claudia's deconstruction of cinema and photography. And it's just like, yeah, okay, this is obviously where we, where we need to get. So we kind of, you know, it just kind of erupted once we kind of found that, uh, point. that point, yeah, which is in hindsight very, very obvious. <laughs> Edward, you didn't mention anything about what your parents did, because my reason for this is because like I'm always interested is like, do creative people sort of breed creative people kind of thing? Or do we do the antithesis of our our parents kinds of things like this is some deep philosophical shit that I care about? They were not by any stretch artistic, although I think in his childhood, my dad was into like prog rock and he was in a band and stuff like that but it kind of i think he was he, was, he really encouraged me to get into music when i was younger so that certainly was influential but no i mean i know that my grandfather was actually because he was from czech and he did some glass making which i found out very later on which is kind of interesting but again he wasn't he wasn't by any stretch an artist it's funny because my elder brother is very artistic and went into film writing but historically my family is not at all i would say quite conventional you were pushing against convention i think more yeah i think probably i pushed against the convention of my family but i don't think intentionally necessarily it was just quite i just never really (laughs) i just never settled into that into that thing so i mean you know it was i was always just pushing at the edges of what was allowed and what was expected (laughs) 
quite quite hard. <laughs> well, speaking of pushing the edges, I like looked at your CVs, both of you, and I'm just like, wow, you both have chosen like the most, um, like n- not preparing you for any industry whatsoever kind of degrees. Like, I mean, you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we didn't choose vocational subjects, no. 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 I mean, my god, like I mean, Edward esoteric philosophies and the geometry, optics and architecture. Like how how is how what is how, what do you what did you expect to be able to do with these things? Don't get me wrong. I say this out of pure mockery because I mean, I'm all I've got fine art major, fine art major, fine art. What the fuck am I going to do with that? What was your thought process on going for those kinds of degrees? Because, and I mean this for both of you, by the way, because I see you looking at Edward. The reason I am is because I, that my main, actually, my main answer regarding the impact of our parents is that I think regardless of them being quite different and coming from different backgrounds, they have all been incredibly supportive of us pursuing subjects that are of interest to us that aren't necessarily conventional. Yeah. I think they were supportive. I mean, it's funny because I, I think when I left school, I was bound for a degree in PPE, you know, philosophy, politics and economics at a kind of top university. And I kind of started out and then was just like, oh, fuck this. <laughs> just kind of you went. left after a month. I left. You? But I think I was just in a, in a mode of thinking, which was, I was just being honest with myself. And I'm just like, I want to do what seems to me to be the most important thing to do which at the time was to explore philosophy further, specifically esoteric philosophy. I mean, I really felt like quite a, a strong compulsion to understand the types of experiences that I was privy to and to sort of understand the the way in which, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain because I think it would, in the mode of thought, thinking that I had at the time, it was just seemed the most obvious thing to do. <laughs> it just seemed like the most. This was the most important thing that I could can, that I could think of. And why would I study anything other than that? And I think that that was just all the way through. I just thought these are the most pressing subjects that I could think of at the time, so I should do that. It'd be really silly not to, because I had the opportunity to do that. I thought there w- was a kind of secret to uncover about the nature of things and that was my mission to kind of pursue this line of thinking claudia same thing to you because i mean you know fine art textile design and environmental anthropology (laughs) well i mean the, the the environmental anthropology very much came after the protest site because i felt like i wanted to have a more theoretical and academic understanding of the processes i'd been through and I ended up my dissertation was on the dwellings and the artwork that's made at protest sites but fundamentally that degree was looking at the way that humans interact with and perceive their environment right so yeah it's theoretical and it doesn't necessarily bear a correlation to a specific career but it had a total relevance to my practice in the sense that when I was working in the darkroom, I was really interested in bringing this experience out, sort of providing like a a platform for other people to have this experience and making these installations using light and lenses. But I was also looking at nature in that way as well. I was using sort of discarded natural debris to, to interface with those objects, with the light and the glass. The way that people interpreted that and interacted with it was very interesting to me. So it started to become about looking at the the relationship between technology and nature, I suppose, broadly speaking, at the beginning. Yeah, and and the environmental anthropology 
just made a lot of sense. I'm not actually questioning either of you all. I just find no, it no, like, no. like, are you kidding me? Like, what kind of degrees are these? Like, I thought I was ridiculous getting MFAs, but like, fuck. <laughs> but it's amazing in a way that you can you can get these degrees. Yeah. And I think that, that was kind of cool, is just the realization that you can just go and study this stuff. But I think if you look at where what our practice is today, it's a direct product of these of these disciplines. And it seems really obvious in hindsight. I mean, if you want to go and study the kind of philosophy of light, let's say. There are particular schools where you can kind of go and study this because there's, there's there are traditions in the philosophical world and in you know, various places where you can look at this stuff before it became a, the realm of physics to study this. That's what you have to go and do, I think, if you're interested in, in trying to delve into the mysteries of light, then there's degrees that you can do to do that, which is kind of cool. So that was what we did. And then, and you know, combining that then with, with anthropology is a very, obvious thing to do in hindsight because if you're creating work to think deeply about what it means to put that into an environment i think this is so often overlooked in in contemporary art because it's just we have a very formal way of presenting things and to to try to kind of i don't know reverse engineer and think differently about that i think does require from the human perspective rather than the art perspective necessarily you know like but funnily enough like my reason for going to study environmental anthropology was not to continue making artwork <laughs> like just to be clear I, I did that degree because I was fascinated in that subject matter and it did bear a relation with what I was interested in in my practice but I, I sort of thought I would move away from practicing potentially at that point and then once I had come out the other side of it it made so much sense to, to loop it back in again not to admit it I'm a horrible light snob among all my friends and peers. Like I'm continually talking about like light qualities and even like colors and textures and all the, yeah, 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 all the stuff you all know. I'm not going to have to talk, tell you about it. Holy shit. You all take it like to the nth degree. Like, I mean, I saw the stuff you all have in your home. Like, holy, I would love to have those kinds of, you know, uh, chandeliers and, and lights that you all have. Like, my God, they're gorgeous. How do you deal with like going places that don't have such beautiful light <laughs> we often change it actually we, we were doing it when we did the, the church installation in durham the hotel room that we were in just had the most abrasive lighting and so i just had to put like my clothes everywhere to soften it. so yeah we i mean we often do do that kind of thing because it really i mean it affects you on a on a physiological level like there's no way they're denying it it has that impact. So yeah, we will often alter the lighting. Something we've discussed quite a lot is that you just you do just get moments of if you kind of tune your yourself to it, you know, you tune your eye and tune your kind of approach to looking, then you see little magic bits of light work happening all over the place. I mean, I'm just looking around right now and just seeing these kind of little magic little pockets of of light. And that's just it that's everywhere, you know, it really is. We do live in a world kind of saturated by this kind of amazing like moments of magic with light so you can always find it unfortunately most people just ignore it though and they just pass it by so that's the sad part of that equation i think we're desensitized to it because we also live with these devices where we kind of have like maximum information light you know and it's so present on the surface constantly so when you see things when there's like this kind of play of daylight that's in this room at the moment it's all subtle. It's behind the surface. It's through different kinds of weird mediations with 
windows and it's very subtle but our devices are kind of the opposite so right on the surface is kind of even it creates this kind of sensation like it's before a surface like you don't even recognize there's a surface there right so it's like it, it almost appears like pre-mediated which is kind of bizarre so yeah that really that desensitizes us a lot well i mean as somebody who intentionally sort of works with light how do you feel about all the light that's created by computers and tablets and phones and all this stuff do you are you very much into technology or you're are you very much not into technologies i think we try to tread a sort of happy balance as much as possible in between the two because we need to use the technologies for work i mean you know aside from using a computer our phones are incredibly useful to us we have a small son who's two and it means that we can stay on top of certain things whilst you know we're caring for him at the same time it's not you know it it does it does make work more possible in in sort of a broader aspect but then i think it's important that we try and take a step back from it as much as possible to practice in a way that doesn't involve technology doesn't involve our screens but often then when we're practicing in that sense it's it's looking at this deconstruction of of the materials anyway so you know it's, it's always in conversation with it yeah i mean the i think that we've kind of embraced this idea of of looking at technology as a whole as a kind of pharmacon you know like a pharmacological thing so it's like poison and cure sort of simultaneously and it's like if you take that approach seriously then you can't be scared of any particular technology you have to kind of probe it and sort of take it very very seriously because it has an effect on consciousness and if you think it's having this kind of effect on on our consciousness then it's not immediately clear what that means so i don't think it's immediately at all clear what our what our interaction with these devices means and that's what our work that's that's kind of one of the principal things that i think our work is trying to get at is just to probe this to explore it and you know it's only in that manner that i think we can come close to you know just thinking about it because it's so pervasive now so pervasive okay that just made me think of a question so your work as a general whole is often made with glass as a material but then the outcome of it is the light passing through the glass and it's the light cast or created in a space so for you so i don't care about for me as a viewer or an experiencer of your work but for you is the work the light that's created or is it the glass if you had to separate the two i think if you had to separate the two i would say that the work is about light and the reason being that light has something very direct to say or to as a metaphor for thinking about our consciousness and our, and our experience but you don't have any conscious experience before it's mediated by something so you don't have an experience of light or an understanding of light or whatever this the the primary subject of the work is light but you don't have it without it being mediated so you don't have it without the glass or or some or some form of mediation which, so which is a comment. You can't on, make your separation. No, no, that's the thing. But, but this is a comment on on our, our knowledge structures as well, right? All of our knowledge comes from you know these these forms of technology which involve glass and light. So telescopy, microscopy, you know the the computer screens that we use, the projectors that we use. All of these forms of technologies involve glass and light, and, and they are inextricable. And the point at which we gained and lost knowledge by these mediums is also completely 
blurred, right? There's there's not a separation from those things now. But I think what we're trying to do, what we're trying to expose in in these light paintings is the kind of invisible magic that happens in between, space in between those things, that the geometries that we can illuminate. Legitimate. It was kind of an, you know, flippant question. But anyways, I have a stupid question. One of my favorite things about this podcast is I get to ask very smart people stupid questions. <laughs> so really stupid question. Why are you named as a collective Schuster and Mosley and not Mosley and Schuster? <laughs> oh, it really just sounds better. Lots of people, are, in fact, my family asked that. And they were like, why is his name best? It just sounds better. Mosley and Schuster doesn't sound as good. Schuster Mosley just rolls off the tongue better. There's no hierarchical. <laughs> we did discuss it, though, because we were we like, did. oh, you know, really. Is it going to sound like the, the man's the coming man's first? Name first yeah. <laughs> mm. But no, it's not. It's not intentional other than aesthetics yeah okay fair enough one thing that i noticed over the course of like watching some videos of your work and also reading about your work you all use the words meditation a lot and things like this so i'm interested to like is that like the practice of meditation or are you religious or spiritual or is there some sort of combination of like your your personal beliefs or is it purely about the idea of like slowing down and being more sort of in the moment I would say that, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, my background is very much involved in thinking about spirituality and thinking about religious traditions and esoteric traditions and things like that. But I think where we're coming from in terms of thinking about meditation is from a, well, it's certainly from a non-religious perspective. It's not from any particular discipline or something like that. It's just purely the fact that meditation as a practice produces psychophysical results and it's kind of demonstrably this very powerful tool and it's something that we practice but outside of the context of any particular tradition or anything like that i ask because my father's a priest so i've always got a little interest when people bring up religion or or meditation or spirituality as part of their statement i'm always like really yeah yeah in a a way that this practice would you can bracket it under meditation it's actually a very broad umbrella, but it does pervade kind of all kinds of religious traditions. I think it's present within most, you know, as a, as a practice, it is just, it's, it's an opening of a kind of gates of the body, mind body, and, you know, developing a stillness and a silence. And, you know, what that means is, is very, very profound. So, yeah, I think it's something that's, it's not just influenced our work, but we, we want to think of our work as kind of enabling a meditation by other means, you know. So. Meditative instruments. So, And I think as well that this is something that we found in composing the works as well, that, that, that composing them in itself is, is a meditation. We, well, Ed specifically, but also together we've looked at, at techniques of gazing. So this idea of, of gazing to meditate, whether it's at a candle or, or crystal gazing, is, there's a process then that you go through when composing these pieces that is incredibly well mindful obviously you know you're, you're you're tuning yourself into these very kind of subtle spectralities and harmonies that the glass creates as it's interacting with light and so yeah that, that process in itself is it's very powerful hmm. now one thing okay so like meditative the desire to slow do all these kinds of things but you all recently had a child mm-hmm. so how has that affected pro con you know whatever your ability to work and or your maybe your outlook on your work in truth it's incredibly difficult (laughs) 
Okay. The main reason it's incredibly difficult is because we want to be very present parents. We have no desire to prioritize our work over our son, but we have a desire to find a balance of our work with our son because it's hugely important to us as individuals and as parents. But it's very difficult to find a good balance. He's a very demanding, engaged kid, which is great. But, you know, it also means that it does have, uh, there's, a, there's a conflict there, you know, which is, which is constantly in flux. And we constantly have to try and find a balance. He with. doesn't want us to have a conversation. No. <laughs> so like, if we're having a conversation, he'll be like, what are you doing? Like, stop talking. Shut up. Talk he'll, to me. No, he literally will say, stop talking. Don't talk. You know, don't talk to mama. <laughs> don't talk to mama. Talk to me. Don't <laughs> yeah. talk to dad. Like, okay. Talk to me. At a certain point, we're going to have to have a conversation <laughs> because we can't do anything. But we are sort of starting to get to a point where he he understands it a bit more and also he, he feels like he can be involved in it. I mean, you know, we really try to involve him. Like we, we you know, actually talking about the, the light interacting in a space, we've put a number of sort of prismic forms on the, the window of his playroom. And so rainbows are cast across that space quite a lot. So, you know, and we really try to engage him in the aspects of our work that might be interesting to him. He also um, obviously comes everywhere with us. So he's just been to Egypt, to the pyramids, to Dubai. And, yeah. you know, he's... He's a he, well-traveled kid at this yeah, point. Yeah, he's kind of traveling with us to come to these sites. So that's kind of amazing. He has these great experiences. Mm. But it's so hard. It's such hard work. I don't, I don't know if you would have seen, but there, there was a, we were interviewed for like an Egyptian... TV program and he wouldn't let me go at that point so they were just like it's fine bring him on so he was clutching onto me as we were giving this interview (laughs) but you know I I think that there is a culture of of separating kids from work and and whilst you know in the one sense it's completely understandable because you need to be able to concentrate and, and we definitely do carve out time where we will be without him and that we will work on our own and, and that's important it's also important to try and engage him as much as possible and to from a young age try and encourage his enthusiasm for certain aspects we're actually hoping he's going to be in charge of logistics when he's older because he's really into forklifts <laughs> and diggers yeah, so yeah. but it does but it does have it, it does also have a very direct relation on these kind of practices we were just describing like mm. having time to meditate or something mm. and then we really have to carve time out to have some kind of space but you know this is that's just part of it I think you just it's the challenge and the sacrifice that you make of parenthood and and I guess kind of you know you have to see it in the mode of sacrifice is kind of and also I think that we we had established something very solid before he came along you know our practice between us the way that we're able to communicate and understand one another's thoughts and processes and ideas was very well established, which I think has has stood us in good stead since, since he's been around because it has meant that the conversations around the kind of creative and conceptual aspects can be fairly direct. And also the work that we did before that, you know, a lot of a lot of the sort of experimentation and exploration that we've been doing over the past 10 years has come into its own especially this year. I mean, you know, the the piece, for example, that we did at the pyramids, we had developed in 2014 in a studio. We were just playing around with some glass offcuts that were in the studio and made this very small maquette and called it glyphs. And then this year we were asked to propose this piece and we were like, well, obviously it's this. It was just so synchronistic. So it's nice to be able to kind of have a bank, I suppose, of, of work that can be drawn upon when the opportunity is right. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really helped. Yeah, and I think you know, an established way of approaching projects or, or, or thinking about it, which means that you don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel each time. It can be fairly fluid and we can trust. I suppose it's more about being able to trust each other and being able to trust each other's decisions because you have we don't have the uh, luxury of as much time as we did before. <laughs> Somehow the work comes out more potent when you have limitations. I think limitations are a really important factor of creation. I think if you are limitless, you know, you have you have all the time, all the money. It's just actually you're overwhelmed. It's much better, I think, to be in an environment or in a, in a space or a setting or a context where you have to restrict yourself in some way and you have to be creative. You know, like some of the most interesting pieces that we've done recently have been sort of, you know, through adversity because something hasn't turned up or, you know, whatever. Like the creation of thinking around that is, is really interesting and really important, I think. Well, and you all are like an excellent example of what I'm, you know, seeing a lot of these days, which is more collaborative styles of working. Like in tradition, if you were a painter, then you were the person who literally held the brush and put the paint on. Whereas you all do a lot of designing, thinking, planning, but then you also have collaborators that you work with to produce the glass. Because I assume neither of you all are actual glass workers. No, we aren't. I mean, we have done we have done an amount of glass making, but very, very... Just enough to be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, well, to be honest, it was more about getting an understanding from a physical perspective as to how the body interacts with this very fluid and wonderful form. And from that point, it was it was incredibly inspirational to us then to, to, to have so many ideas that we, you know, I mean, we could produce and, and we work with people who are incredibly, incredibly talented at what they do and, and, and very good at being collaborators, very good at us sort of, you know, sculpting through them. Because traditionally artists are not good at collaborating. Well, but, you know, it's it's fundamental to the way that we interact together anyway. You know, we have to be good at it. But also because, you know, we don't just work with fabricators. We also, we also work with engineers and with architects and, you know, a number of other people who we rely upon to endow their knowledge onto, onto a project. Now, these days, okay, so you've all been doing this together. Okay, how long have you been doing this together? Uh, well, this specific practice probably since about 2014. 2013. Okay, so seven, eight years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these days, how do you like get your, like, do you come up with proposals and you're like, oh my God, I really want to do this project in this place with this outrageous budget and this crazy scheme and all this kind of stuff? Or do you do RFPs or are people just coming to you and all and asking you? It's a mixture really, isn't it? I'd say it's kind of the majority of it is people coming to us. I think we kind of, Obviously, like anyone, you kind of start out and you're just constantly trying to find some traction somewhere and pushing. But we kind of got to a point where it's like not really practical to be spending our time doing that. So we kind of wait. We don't, we don't look for projects anymore. We it's, wait it's, for it's people the, to come to and, us. And, and to be honest, it's really quite amazing to be able to say that, actually, because there was a very long time where we were not in that position and we were constantly, you know, knocking on doors and we were constantly, you know, scouring the internet, trying to find different projects that might be suitable to us and putting together presentations, you know, that you just send off into the abyss. 
and eventually something sticks. <laughs> Actually, you start to get traction and, and, it, and, it, and it does work like that now. And, and we are in a position where we can't do everything that, that comes to us, which I'm pretty proud to say. I think, you know, we worked very hard to get to that point where, where that was the situation. And we have been incredibly lucky to have some incredible projects presented to us. But I think it's interesting in terms of how you, so when you start out, I guess you're very self-consciously trying to build a, you know, a portfolio, whatever it is, of particular kinds of works. And I, but I think once we, we sort of set up, uh, about trying to develop some principles of reasons why we were doing things or how we would approach things, like a philosophy, right? A way of practicing that we could then apply to different projects, which is also why it's kind of, I think that's the really hard work that you, ha- mm. you have to do, right? So then when something comes along, you can go, well, actually, we know how to do this now. We know how to, what, how we're going to approach this. Mm. Whatever the result of it is kind of comes quite naturally out of the process that we've already established. And that means that the portfolio kind of just builds itself and sort of fills in the gaps. So you can have a slightly more hands-off process, I think, because it's not like, well, we're desperate to make this particular piece because, you know, we need to develop the work kind of like this. It's almost like it has its own logic and the next steps will will manifest because that's the natural way for it to progress. And it's really nice to kind of take that approach because you start seeing that the opportunity just opens to to do that, right? And And it's really, that's really fascinating and very rewarding because you think, well, it's the proof in a way that the the methodology works because the thing's happening. We're just kind of like... It has its own momentum. Yeah, we're just sort of coaxing it along. Yeah. Well, we all hope our careers have that momentum. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or it's just an illusion. It's just quite possible. But it's also about... Yeah. Then it's also, you know, back to your question about collaboration because it's, it's also so reliant on having the right teams and the right people to be Mm. working with so you can also execute things it's so much of the battle so much of the time is having the right if you work with the wrong people Mm. it's a nightmare you can't do anything and those relationships have been developed since very close to the beginning since 2014 2015 we've been developing relationships with with people and you know often it was developing projects that fell through or didn't happen but you still you started this way of working together such that when when the ones did happen you know the process was there i think that was very self-conscious that so developing the methodology and self-consciously yeah. kind of finding the right team people to, to work with was very sort of self-consciously developed so that we can build everything out from that you all make these monumental pieces these massive installations and 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 i believe you all also still make like the chandeliers and stuff that i saw in the videos and things like this but i feel like that was maybe a while ago and sort of you're growing into these bigger larger pieces and not doing so many of the smaller pieces do you still make anything that's available for let's say like quote unquote like the average person to purchase or is everything a very high priced kind of like installation kind of scale no it's not it's we we try very much to have a broad spectrum of of works that are available but you know not just for purchase but also for exhibition i mean like there is something of what well, we try to involve something of democracy in, in our work. We try to exhibit in spaces that are very accessible. In fact, specifically at the beginning, we were avoiding exhibiting in gallery spaces because we wanted for average people to feel like they could walk into that space. You know, it takes a lot to open a door. And I think that it's important for people to feel like they can walk into spaces that contain art without necessarily feeling like they have to have an understanding of it. So, you know, the pieces that we did, for example, in the, in the church, you know, the 
fluidity of people that were walking through that space was was really important to us. So in that sense, yeah, I, I think, but as well, the light mobile works are very much still something that we we work on. We really enjoy working on them aside from anything else. And we do, we do make them on commission privately as well. So, so there's a, there's a mixture, there's a, there's a, there's a mixture of things that we're doing in that sense. Well, I think also it's just, we want to, be, we want to make stuff that can, that can be put into a domestic context because it's really, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we do it as you, as you have seen in our house and that's, it's wonderful. I think we, we, we love doing that. We love making that kind of work. So you can, you can install it in your, in a domestic space and it becomes, you know, what is this? It's a light painting, but it's also something that, that hangs as a sculpture and interacts with natural light and becomes this quite dramatic piece at nighttime. And it's, it can really transform a, a space. And we have a lot of work that we're doing day to day that's it's of that kind of scale, of that small scale. But I think as well, you know, it's important to kind of, you know, it's very easy when you're doing these big scale projects to, to become overwhelmed by the volume of people that are seeing it and the way that that becomes more pervasive of the work. And, and whilst that is important, the individual kind of more introspective view of our work is really important to us as well. So it's really important to us that people can, you know, sit in kind of isolation and be with the works that the works can come into their homes and create these sort of moments of ambience of calm they become atmospheric in private spaces as well as in public spaces it's something that actually when I first set out to practice art was was very important to me was the balance between private and public because I think that the moments of introspection with an artwork is very important and sometimes that's not possible in a public space and sometimes it's not possible in a private space. Exactly, that's also true. Yeah, I used to run a public sculpture program and we always had issues because sometimes the general public didn't appreciate something being put into their public space as much <laughs> as other people did appreciate something being put into their public space. So like working in public has its own set of issues because unfortunately oftentimes the disgruntled people are louder mm -hmm. than the approval people. Yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of that when we were doing the treehouse projects. We have less of it now. I think our work is is slightly less controversial at this point. Although there, there was discussion around the pyramids project. I think the pyramids pro pyramids projects in general was quite interesting for that because some people, and I think they, you know, have a a valid point. It's like, what are you doing? Like, clearly, clearly, the great pyramids of Giza don't need augmenting. You know, like <laughs> they're doing fine. But on the other hand, I think that. In general, everyone we spoke to was really into it. It was really because I think it happens for such a short period. You know, it's not like works are you know interfering with the pyramids for a sort of long period of time. It's it's much more something that was a moment of conversation, a moment of dialogue, which mm. had never happened before. I mean, it's extraordinary that it had never happened before, and that it, that it could. It was incredible, but but there was there was criticism because there are a lot of people who live very close to the pyramids but can't afford to get into them because you know there's a whole industry around them now. These social aspects are always part of exhibiting in public spaces. I think to try and embrace them in some way and to try and understand them is really important. But also, you know, if if you can't, a sort of acceptance that that we are doing what we're doing because we find truth in it and presenting that. And knowing that it's not something that is going to interfere with with people's enjoyment of those spaces for you know indefinitely, I think. But I think the point is, is that it's quite. It, it's actually it is a kind of valid position to take. So like, this is public space, and then you're putting this thing into here. And you know what, what, why, and what does that mean? And I think that that's totally valid. And I think sort of approach the project knowing that that's 
that's a question that we're trying to not answer, but it's open up. Open up. It's like, yeah, that's totally, you know, that's a totally reasonable response to this. And what do you think? You know, is this is this interesting? Is this an interesting kind of dialogue to have? And I, unfortunately, I think we've been on the receiving end of the negative side of it. It tends to produce a you know a positive outcome because I think that in general people open to the conversation and that's what public space affords is just why well, I said you know you open this uh, it's a forum this but also forum, you know yeah. as artists you're not there to answer questions you're there to expose the questions you know to, to, to present different questions and different possibilities but it's not an answer well that's an interesting conversation to have <laughs> because unfortunately there's a lot of people in the world that think that the, our role is to be there to answer and to be show ponies and to sell our works and you know social media and all these kinds of things like this is a very common thought about art these days is that it's not really supposed to question as much as supposed to make statements and that sort of is an interesting dilemma that I think social media has encouraged, sadly. It's the consumption of, of art. It's, it's the sort of bite-sized, you know, pleasing, aesthetically valuable pieces that, that actually I think lose a lot of their value as soon as that's their intention, but also as soon as that's the way that they are consumed. Uh, I mean, I think we, we struggle a lot with the kind of social media and the phone interaction, I mean, I've been to exhibitions where people are literally looking at work through their phones, you know, not even putting it down. Like it's just the gaze is through the phone the whole time. I literally saw a woman walking around <laughs> with her phone, not looking at anything, not looking up at all. And I think it's tragic, really. It's so sad that that has become the norm. However, it's incredible that we can do an exhibition halfway across the world that, you know, a lot of people can then see and can appreciate and get something out of. So, you know, it's the Pharmacon, it's it's a blessing and a curse at the same time, which is why we can't provide the answers. We can only keep the dialogue open. Well, I think our, I think we just very actively want to approach our work as, as kind of question to open something rather than to make a statement. It really is very purposefully kind of set up like that. You know, you is like we we have this uh, installation in the in the gallery in London right now, and it's a set of four light mobiles. And basically, it doesn't really you can't it doesn't work through the camera, and it also it doesn't really work until you kind of your eye has to do the work. It's not the art isn't really there on the surface. So in terms of like what was the statement of it, it's like well you're you really have to relax your eye to see, and to, so your eye has to do the work. But also, it's so it's of, like sit down. Yeah look at you know like <laughs> rather than rather than this idea of like well how, how should I look at it what should I do where should I put my camera like no just sit with it well that actually lends an interesting question because like as a photographer myself and it's a, and a light snob myself like so when you produce these pieces do you have like a optimal position and height and everything that you you think like that is exactly how the work should look and then everything else is like okay that's cool also but like but this one place is the perfect place to experience it or is it the entire experience of the whole thing it's funny i mean in egypt they, they put this they put these 
And what, did, what did they even call them? Said, uh, Markers. Yeah, but they had like a funny name. Perfect, for picture perfect spot. Picture perfect spot. It's like, take your, take your picture from here. And it's it's funny because our piece took all these different angles and bits of the geometry from the pyramids and kind of really like deconstructed it and reformed it. But there were things where it really aligned. So, you know, the slope of one of the faces aligned with one of the faces of the pyramid. And other bits were much more kind of interpretive and different angles and things like that, which means that as you move around it, you see all these different kind of interactions and geometric forms that kind of combine in different ways and it's very interactive but they wanted like this one spot and there is obviously we actually we did render it from a particular spot which they actually managed to get but it wasn't it was never the the intention that it's just this one angle it's an interactive piece that you have to move around right but it is funny because then people are like well it doesn't line up like because they wanted to see like oh did you do it wrong because you haven't like got this perfect like outline of the like we were supposed to make a silhouette or something like this which would have been really fun but actually, but it did line up from a specific way. It just, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the point of it. Yeah. You know, the point the point very much was a dialogue that's interpretive. But I think from a photography perspective, I tend to have a you know photographers that would come and document the work, and it's always a really it's always quite a challenging thing because it's not that there's a particular point where we want the work to be, but I think we have a very particular idea of what would what constitutes a good photograph of the piece yeah, just because we've we've looked at it from all kinds of different and it's not that there's one it's just that there's there's a set of aesthetic kind of approaches that we have in mind and sometimes a photographer will just not capture that and you're like hmm, it's interesting you know you just you you saw this in a very different way but we always sort of encourage a photographer to really take time to just mm. explore this thing because this i think it's very well this is I, I don't know. It's, I think it's very interesting from a photographer's perspective to look at the world. I mean, it's kind of a really silly thing to say, but it, it is very challenging to photograph it a is. lot of the time. And it's a bit, and also there's lots of like ways in and approaches, especially these, well, I'd say all of it, really, the light mobiles and the, and the, and the larger kind of... Especially because a lot of the time we're trying to evoke an atmosphere, you know, picking up an atmosphere on an image is very difficult. I think it is possible if it's experienced. You know, actually, when we were in Egypt, there was actually a film made about the, this project. And the, the filmmaker, Oscar, really had a lot of time to kind of spend with the work and with us and experiencing the, the whole process. And he took some incredible photos that were not that picture perfect, you know, shot. They were much more sort of insightful and also very personal, I think, of sort of his take on it, his interaction with it, which, which was really beautiful. Yeah. I love it when a photographer kind of, they, like I say, so we have a particular idea of, of what constitutes a good photograph, but we're not photographers at all. So when a photographer kind of takes that and just does something complete, you know, just really just takes it to the next level and you see it's their reaction to it. It's their, their personal journey. And that's, that's amazing. That's kind of, that's the best. Well, Claudia is a photographer. I mean, the thing is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a photographer in the loosest sense. I, I'm not, I know, I, I don't think I can call myself a photographer because the thing is I went into photography and completely deconstructed the whole process. <laughs> so, and I was never very good at like the F-stop and the aperture. I mean, I can't remember any of those numbers and what they mean. Like, that's just not how I am. I'm not good at instructions and following these, you know, very specific sort of mathematical technologies. I'm, I'm much more intuitive than that, which is why it made so much more sense to me. You know, I, I'd like, I'd take photos on, on, a, on a camera that would come out kind of 
blurry and not correctly exposed. And then, and to then the magic for me was playing in the dark room and looking at how this image could do something interesting. And often they did, but, but it was about that tactility then afterwards, you know, like being able to move around the light and experiment with the exposure times in the dark room. Like that was what I was interested in. And that was why I started to deconstruct it in the way that I did. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm quote unquote a photographer. I was trained in photography, but I haven't owned a camera in five years. Mm-hmm. Like so, like I just you know I don't do that. But it's still my foundation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. No last little bit that I have a question about is like the fragility of your work. Like so, the the, the, the two words that pop in my mind are fragile or fragility and ephemeral. So like they they have very specific times like so let's say the outdoor outdoor ones you know on a certain type of day a sunny day it's going to look very different than on a cloudy day and different you know morning and different than evening so on so on we know all these obvious things but there's also the fragility of the choice to use glass because i mean you could have just as easily done molded plexi or plastics or any other kinds of things so like how do you feel about the sort of the nature of like working with both a, a fragile material oftentimes in public also that's also ephemeral like you have you've combined like two of the most like specific things that like come together in a most difficult manner that i could possibly ever imagine it's it is difficult no it's true that it is difficult but but the quality of glass as opposed to you know like plexi like they're worlds apart Aside from aside from the kind of visual quality, there's also the kind of fundamental quality of it, like the way that it's created. There's no magic. It's not the same. And so that's that is is really fundamentally important. But also the value, I don't really like to use that. I'm not using that word in a monetary sense. I'm using it in a more conceptual sense. So the conceptual value of the work is not in the physicality of the pieces as such. The value is embedded in our thought processes, in our research, in our practice, and in the way that the work manifests. So I think that it's really important to understand that, you know, for example, with the the piece that we exhibited at the pyramids, there's like, there's a document that comes with that work. And it explains every single angle, every single measurement, and the way that those angles and measurements relate to the pyramids. (laughs) That's where our work lies in that stuff. And from that, you mean that it sort of overrides the potential fragility of the work Mm -hmm. because there's a a reproducibility around the Mm -hmm. actual glass itself. I I would say beyond that as well, I think we're, we're really interested in the fact that to do glass and to do it in sometimes in these temporary settings in public and things like this is like you said it's a huge technical challenge but we kind of like that technical challenge you know it's like working with engineers trying to answer some of these technical questions around how to do that is is, is some of the most fascinating things because it, it's possible we've demonstrated the possibility of doing that that's really that's that's been an amazing kind of process and an amazing learning curve but i think one of the reasons why we wanted to do that is because this material is so pervasive actually, in our architectures and in our technological screens and all this kind of... There was a a very kind of immediate reason to use this material, essentially. And then it is fragile, it's brittle, but it's very, very strong as well. It's an engineered material and it's an engineered material. And, you know, we can create these, these geometries which are incredibly strong and incredibly solid. They do have a fragility to them, but if they're handled correctly and if they're treated well and if you've 
answered the the kind of logistical questions, which we have to do, then there's no reason for something to go wrong other than human error. And you have that same human error that with with any kind of material, with with moving, you know, anything or with handling anything, any other kind of material, it has it can be damaged. So. I don't know. It's it's been a very interesting process, I'd say. It, but it certainly it certainly is a challenge. <laughs> we don't really chose the hard route. But that's kind of our. We tend to though. That's kind of our. <laughs> that's what we do, isn't it? All right. Is there any topics that you all want to talk about that I didn't even ask you about? That's something that's on your mind or that interests you that I didn't even know to ask you about. I don't think so. Not specifically. To be honest, we've sort of, we've just come to the end of this incredibly intense period of work. Like, you know, because the, obviously the lockdowns happen and everything. And we kind of had a few projects that we were working on, but then everything just built up to this past couple of months where we were traveling with our two year olds and mounting like huge <laughs> projects. So we, we're slightly brain dead. Uh, brain dead yeah. <laughs> So we more, I hope that we've given you a good, uh, good response. Some sort of content questions. that's useful. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Actually, I found you all because of a article on CNN.com about the Egypt exhibition. Oh, really? Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I found you all in the first place. Okay. It was an amazing, that whole project was absolutely incredible. So mental, really, really mental. And you mentioned you went to Dubai also. Did you do a project in Dubai or just vacationing? No, no, we were doing another project. So, so we literally went from... Well, actually, it started in Mallorca. We did a, a, an installation in, in a private residence in, in Mallorca. Then we went directly to Egypt to do, to do the pyramids project. Then we went directly to Dubai, where we were installing these four, we call them anti-prisms. So they're based on this kind of extrapolation of Archimedean solids. They're actually called Johnson Johnson solids. They're, they're formed that kind of use equilateral triangles that kind of explore the, the potential of, of expanding these, these shapes, these forms. Sorry, I'm laughing at myself because I'm sitting here nodding like I understood what you oh, just really? said. I have no idea what you just said. Sorry. <laughs> it's, I, it's okay. prisms the giant made prisms of, made of glass. Triangles. But they, they <laughs> very, very precise. incredibly precise. I mean, the, the, the way that they were fabricated was so extraordinary. And it was experimental. It was something, something that hasn't been done before. We had sort of architects coming up to the works and saying, how did you do this? Because they were all made of equilateral triangles. Every angle on the edge of each equilateral triangle had to be very specific as in to the 0 0.0 decimal place degree. And then there had to be angles ground into the corners of those pieces as well so that they all fit together precisely because any uh, incorrect measurements would sort of build up intolerances and, and end up with it not working. So we presented these four pieces there and then directly we, we got back to London and had an exhibition which is on currently until February at Gallery Rosenfeld. And, and that one in Dubai is at the DIFC, it looks like? Yeah, it's in D3. So And, and that one was with Espace Studio. So Espace Studio have just recently set up in, in the Middle East as a kind of foundation for promoting artworks. Espace is actually a British, well, it's run by a British lady who moved there recently because she sort of saw a lot, a lot of opportunity to mount works in, in that way. And I think that it's great to be able to have these opportunities to do such such extraordinary things because, you know, often there is a lot of intrepidation in the UK and I don't know about the States so much, but, you know, it's good to be able to explore that and then and then from that point remount it here. Yeah, I'm not sure if you could put large-scale solid glass sculptures in the United States in the litigious society that they have there without, yeah. like, 
a barrier then around it to protect people from harming themselves on the glass, which sounds so stupid when I say that like that, but it's true. Yeah. Well, in truth, it's something that we're still slightly concerned about because there aren't any barriers around the ones that are there and they're, they're there until December. We would like there to be barriers mainly because we know what it's like to have a two-year-old that runs <laughs> and it's hard to catch. So, uh, but, um, circling back to the child conversation. Yeah. Yes. But no, I mean, I think, I think to be honest, to have the opportunity to, to be able to realize those kind of works is, is really extraordinary. And I think that our works, you know, they're not linked to a kind of social political movement such that they do have a voice in varying cultures. And that's something that's really important to us. All right. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully someday I'll have enough money to afford one of your stuff for my house. But, you know. Well, I, hope, I mean, we, we really need to visit Czech, actually. Well, not. Yeah, I mean, so we, we made some pieces over there. We weren't able to visit the factory where they were making them because of everything. But it's a really wonderful factory that's, well, fabrication, glass making space. So maybe we can... We'll do a trip out there. I need to find my lost, my long lost family out there at some point in, <laughs> yeah, in my life. <laughs> I know. I need to get over to Germany. I know that my my let's see, my great great grandfather is from this little small town that's only about three and a half hours away from here. Right. And I've been here for four years, and I fucking haven't made it there. I'm like, it's so pathetic. Like seriously, I can't go three and a half hours to find my 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 heritage. That's pathetic. <laughs> Well, yeah, one tends to have an intrepidation about that because who knows what you're going to uncover. I don't know. I think, it's, you know, there's a lot of emotional baggage in family lineages. Especially historically, because people didn't always know when they'd fathered children. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? We had this with my grandma recently because my grandma found out not so long ago that she actually had seven siblings that she didn't know about. Yeah. Oh, you want to, yeah, you want to know about that? Yeah. My dad, my, let's see, my dad, let's see, I was, God, what was it? Probably 18 years old. My grandfather died. And then at his funeral, we're there and there's this whole group of people over on the other side of the church. And I'm like, dad, who are those people? He's like, I have no idea. So he goes over and starts talking to them. And turns out that my grandfather had seven siblings. And he had never once in his entire life spoken about them. Ever. He knew about them. Of course he knew about them. My grandmother <laughs> didn't know, you see, so now it doesn't seem so implausible. <laughs> but but my father never heard a word spoken about these people. And what's even worse, wow. they all lived in the same city. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> That's crazy. How strange. Seven siblings that my grandfather never spoke to nor spoke of for his entire adult life. Wow. Wow. I tell you, family problems. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I keep wondering that too. I'm like, what caused such a rift that he would never speak of them again? Like, that's crazy. Goodness. But anyways, that's my problem. (laughs) Well, it's really great to meet you and talk to you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. 
They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The importance and the value of financial support for the arts cannot be overstated. So I would like to express my appreciation for EEA grants from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway for their support in their effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in the Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.